I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. We're getting right into the heart of classic season now, and I've cancelled all weekend plans until the end of April, when I anticipate again cancelling my weekend plans through May for the Giro d'Italia. We all know that the classics are unmissable races, and you can guarantee you won't miss a moment of these incredible races with GCN+. You can watch all the major races for both men and women, live and uninterrupted, with GCN Plus's ad-free coverage. And for those days when you just can't get out of what's been planned, you can catch up at a time that suits you with a full replay or GCN Plus's selection of highlights packages. There's expert commentary, and then GCN Plus's panel of knowledgeable ex-pros will analyse the action and explain the tactics. You can also get all the pre-race information you need with full previews, maps, profiles and start lists on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all through the road and MTB seasons and beyond to the cyclocross and track seasons. And you'll have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films. There are over 150 to choose from, covering all aspects of the sport, with more added every week. A GCN Plus subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month. And all our listeners, based in the UK and US, can save 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe. That's gcn.eu slash ruler15. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. The sun has come out, in Devon at least, and it's Holy Week in cycling. It's the eight days which encompass the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. All is well with the world. I'm going to be joined today by Rachel Jarry, who is right in the thick of it in Flanders this week. I'll be catching up with GCN Plus presenter and former pro Dan Lloyd to find out his take on the 2023 Rondes. And finally, I'll be talking with Ruler's roving photojournalist, James Start, whose favourite race of the year, Paris-Roubaix, is coming up this weekend. But first, I've managed to pin down Rachel Jarry, whose work rate for Ruler.cc has been every bit as impressive as that of Tade Pogacar and Lotta Kopecky, and is doing her own mini tour of Flanders every day between team hotels and races. So, Rachel, you used to live in Belgium, right? Is it nice to be back? 
yeah, it's nice to be back and know that I don't have to do a race because when I see them go over those cobbles and stuff, I get a bit of PTSD from the days I used to have to do it. So it's nice to be here and not be in that stressful mindset of doing a race and just being able to watch it and enjoy seeing the people who know how to do it, do it. That's better. Where were you living when you were in Belgium? I was living in Zottegem, so right in the like kind of heart of where all of the races are actually it was a really good place to live but for this trip I've been staying in Cortrike just because I got a bit of intel before that this is the area where most of the teams would be staying because I think it's kind of a middle point between Flanders and Roubaix so it's good for reckies and stuff like that so there's quite a few pros around actually like today I've just I've been seeing a few of the Astana guys and Bahrain Victorious guys riding around on training rides which is quite cool. Rachel, you've been covering the classics for a few years now. What are your impressions this year? I think this year, the level of the races has definitely gone up. Um, I think for the fans, it's been a bit of a nicer experience because it's not been raining the whole time. There was loads of fans out watching the finish in Udenard, which was really good to see. But I mean, every year, Flanders is an amazing race and the Belgians just go mad for it. It's really cool, cool place to be. And... It's not raining, but it's pretty chilly, isn't it? The races on Sunday looked, I don't know, looked on the cold end. Yeah, it was cold, actually. I think it got to like minus one in the night. It was. It's more like that freezing cold wind that I think makes it feel even colder than it is. And it's a bit deceiving because you look out the window and you can see the sun and you think that looks like a beautiful sunny day. But actually, yeah, it's really cold when you step out. So, And you could tell because some of them were wearing leg warmers and stuff for winter kit in the race, which is quite unusual. What's the general atmosphere and feeling around the place? Like, can you tell it's Holy Week? To be honest, not like outside of race day. Where I am in Courtrick, it feels pretty normal. There's a big fairground being set up in the middle of the town. I guess that's for like Easter celebrations. But I think what strikes me compared to like when you're in the UK is that you go into like a news agents and they're cycling on the front page of a of like the major national newspaper, which you would just never see anywhere anywhere else. So you turn on the TV and they're talking about like Flanders on the news and stuff. And that makes it feel a bit more like the whole nation's got a sense of, of the gravity of what's happening. They do love it. And like, for example, the woman who I'm renting this apartment off, when I arrived, she she said to me, like, what are you doing here? And she knew about the race straight away. And she said she doesn't really know much about cycling, but obviously everyone knows about the Tour of Flanders. Whereas in the UK, I'm not sure everyone would even know of the Tour of Britain or a race like that. So it's different in that sense. I guess that must be different on Sunday, though, because not everybody's out, but a lot of people come out for the race, don't they? It's a really special occasion. Yeah, I mean, it's just a big party for them, isn't it, really? Like, it's just a really fun, good time. And I mean, I get it. I get why they come out. You get to see these guys come past and it's, it's really exciting. And they've all had quite a few beers and it gets quite rowdy. It's just a celebration of cycling. And it is really nice. Like at the start in Bruges, there was guys just handing out the little yellow like Flandrian flags just to anyone who wanted one. And then uh, one of the riders I was talking to said that, I can't remember which climb it was now, but he said up one of the climbs, you could just, it all he felt like he was just riding through a sea of these yellow, little yellow Flandrian flags. And it is like nothing else. I mean, anywhere in the world, you don't really get that sort of atmosphere. And on a practical level, what's a working day for you on race day? I only came out on Saturday. So that was only one day before the race. So the stressful part for me was getting to Bruges and I had to try and find the place to get my accreditation. But once I finally secured it after a lot of, being turned away by security guards and told to go to different places. Had to go to the team buses, have a look at if anyone was using any cool tech or speak to some riders. I 
always find getting pre-race quotes as kind of a bit redundant because they tend to lose their value in the sort of span of the race. So I don't really try and get too much there. And then sometimes it's really nice to go out on the course and I kind of wish I could have done that this year, but it can also be very stressful and not worth it. So we just ended up driving straight to the finish in Udenard. And the way it worked out is then we saw the women start there and then we could stay there for the finish of both races. But like the nice part of the day or the sort of relaxed part of the day is watching the races. But it's like as soon as they finish, that's when the work of a journalist really starts. And when they crown them both on the same day, like they do at Flanders, you don't end up finishing the press conferences till about like eight o'clock. I was kind of a bit stressed, but it was like, oh man, it's already eight o'clock and we've got to start work now, basically. When the riders are able to relax, we have to go for it and start riding. And what was the atmosphere like on the finish line? It was really exciting. I mean, as journalists, to be honest, we don't get to like see a lot of it because they make like a mixed zone at the end of the finishing straight. And we were pegged in behind these barriers under a gazebo, with just a TV screen to watch the finish on. So I, I feel like I don't always get to soak up like that much of, of the atmosphere. There were so many people there. You could hear like the roar of the crowd when when the races were finishing. And it, it was, yeah, it was really exciting. What were your takeaways from the two races? I think both races were unexpected winners, like Podjakal was the pre-race favourite, one of the pre-race favourites for the men, and Kopecky obviously won the women's race last year as well. So she was going in there as kind of the one everyone was watching. She's like a home favourite. I think with the men's race, one of the main takeaways has to be how fast it started and how it just was symbolised how much cycling has changed and that they didn't have that sort of relaxed 100 or so K where the break can establish itself and get a big gap. Everyone had got that mindset to anticipate the moves of those three riders like Van Aert, Van der Poel, Podjakar, that everyone wanted to get ahead of them so they weren't victim to those accelerations that they do on the climb. And that just changed the dynamic of the race completely and just made it exciting like from the gun you could have watched it from the flag drop and not been bored which isn't always the case with long classics and then in the women's yeah I mean Kopecky was really strong and she won and it was the expected thing for her to do was to ride away on the cobbled climbs but she was made to work pretty hard for it this this time it wasn't like SD works they were really dominant but other teams were catching up like Trek Segafredo did loads of really good work on the front to make it not easy for them Sylvia Persico was a standout rider kind of the only one who could stay with Kopecky until quite close to the finish and I think with the women's race it was a, a good indicator of at Roubaix it's definitely not going to be easy for the team like SD works just to take another clean sweep I think the other teams are definitely closing in and are becoming more aware of how to race to beat them really and so we'll do the races in order what was your sense of the reaction from the riders themselves to that race I think a lot of the discourse like at the finish was about that big crash that happened with about 140k to go uh, I think riders like Maceo Trentin were really vocal about how disappointed they were with riders actions and people not taking enough care in the bunch um and a lot of journalists were interested in asking questions to the riders about how they'd managed to get through unscathed, what they saw from the crash. And then, yeah, a lot of it was just like a kind of acceptance. We asked Mads Pedersen, like, what did you think when Podrigal came past you? And he just thought, goodbye, my friend, good luck. And it was just like, that's that was it. I mean, everyone just was like, he's, a, you know, he's an amazing athlete. We couldn't have done any more. No one really had any regrets. It was just like everyone did what they could and he was still the best. And that was just kind of the vibe at the end. And then... 
the women's race, the riders were all just looked absolutely exhausted at the end, like completely shattered. I think that um, Persico said it was the hardest race she's ever done. They were just really tired. A lot of them were like shivering and eating their pasta and really not wanting to speak to journalists actually. So I ended up having to go to the buses and be really annoying and ask the press officers if they would come out and give some interviews. And I got got a couple of people to come and chat to me, which was nice. And just on a racing level, SD Works looked imperious. They are the team to beat. But like I said, I, I really think that teams like Trek are closing in and um, like Longo Borghini, who obviously finished third in the end, said in her interview that she's sick of watching races, watching women's races on TV and seeing when SD Works get off the front, a kind of acceptance in the peloton. All right, they've gone now. We've lost the race. We're racing for second. And Trek are really keen to sort of make sure they make it hard for them and not that she said we need to not give a heck about if there's so many SD Works riders in our group we should race our race do our plan and I think that that will pay off eventually and especially when it's sort of terrain that's like not as much in Capecchi's favor as Flanders like she is a rider who lives and breathes the cobbles she was like born here she grew up riding on them just watching her I mean you probably could see as well but like she looked like she was just meant to be doing that like she was born to ride them and when it comes to races that are a little bit less weighted in the favour of a team like SD Works, I think we'll see a lot more of like a tighter battle. Thanks for your time and insight, Rachel. You can read Rachel's excellent reportage on ruler.cc. Next up for Rachel, I guess, is Paris-Roubaix. Yes, I'm heading to the women's race Saturday, men's race on Sunday. So yeah, hopefully more exciting races. I'm looking forward to them. Good luck. Thanks very much. Next up, we're going to talk tactics and strategy with Dan Lloyd of GCN+. I'm here at GCN Towers in Bath with Dan Lloyd, former pro, GCN Plus presenter and fellow Tour Flanders aficionado. Happy Holy Week, Dan. I can't wait for the next part of this week. I've already thoroughly enjoyed Sunday's races, but I won't say the best is yet to come because we don't know how Roubaix is going to be, but it's the best week of the year for me in cycling. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You've had a couple of days to digest the tours of Flanders. What's your perspective on it? We'll talk about the men's race first. What's your perspective on that race now? Or are you still awestruck at what you saw? It takes a while to comprehend what you saw, doesn't it, with Pogaccia on Sunday? I've been thinking of a couple of things, one of which is what you mentioned on Twitter about the gap between the big three and anybody that had been with them at the point that they created separation to everyone else. Because it's easy to look at the results and look at where Pedersen and Askreen were and the time gap to them. But as you pointed out on Twitter, of all the people that they left behind when they went, Tish Benoit was the closest. He was over five minutes down. So that's the level of dominance, that if they'd all started at the same place, you know, they wouldn't have had people to be chasing down at that point, but, and so the gaps could have been less, but it really gives you a sense of just how much they were above everybody else. And then Pogaccio himself was above the other two of the big three. So the other thing that I keep thinking about is that if Pogaccio hadn't started, how differently we'd be talking about Van der Poel and his third victory, equaling the record of victories in the Tour of Flanders. And just what must be going through his mind that this is like a little bonus for Pogaccio, that he's won this cobbled monument when actually his main focus still is on the Tour de France, etc. And if he hadn't been there, then we'd be talking in, in very different words about the results of the race and and where where Vanderpool sits in the pantheons of, of classics greats. This was essentially a five-minute beating. When you look back over cycling history, it's actually only the very, very greats who kind of hand out those kind of thrashings to everyone else, isn't it? Yeah, and as you know, it's not normally people that win Grand Tours at the same time. It's become more and more specialist over the years. In fact, I was trying to look, I was looking back this morning at the last 
Grand Tour winner to win the Tour of Flanders. And I think it was Bugno. And you have to go further back than that to find a Tour de France winner, of course, that's won the Tour of Flanders in their career as well. So, yeah, it was a trouncing. And like you said, if you take into account that there was a three-minute time gap to that group of Pedersen and Asgreen, you know, both riders that have either won or finished on the podium with the race before, they've closed that three-minute gap and he's put at least a minute into everybody else over the top of those climbs at the end. It was utterly, utterly dominant. And I think you can see that on the, on the Strava speed as well up the Quaramont, like the second time up, a 33k per hour average on the main part of the climb. It's, it's just bonkers. And I also think... My- Personally speaking, one of my takeaways is that I think I'm reluctantly having to come to terms with the fact that the race has changed. The received wisdom over many years and how I've always perceived the race has been that it's different from other races. And I get a feeling of validation from striving to understand it because it's definitely not something you can easily explain. Mm. It's always been to me a race that you you have to have experience, you've got to learn the roads, you've got to have this kind of weird esoteric knowledge that's handed down by word of yeah. mouth from older pros. And I think that was the case for for many, many years. And e- even up to a few years ago, that was the case. But I feel that what Pogacar has done is to make that theory redundant. I think he he's turned it into a pure physical yeah. test. I think and, you're right. And, and- it's actually something that Andreas Clear said on a, on a documentary we did on GCN Plus last year about how to win Flanders, that back in his day, you could be a bit more clever than the people around you and come out with a really big result. You know, He came close to winning it. I think his best place was second or third at the Tour of Flanders. He's watched the sport over many, many years because he's been a rider and now he's a sports director at EF Education Easy Post. And he said exactly the same thing as you. You know, the, the days of being able to be more knowledgeable, a bit more clever than those around you and get a huge result haven't completely gone, but it's much less likely than it was because, and it's twofold, I think. It's firstly these incredible physiological performances, not that you didn't get them before, but they just seem a little bit more astounding. But also that that knowledge can be garnered in other ways apart from living in Belgium and knowing the roads because race radio to start with, but just all the velo viewer and the amount of knowledge that you can get before you go into it. But you you still get the sense that even if there was no velo viewer and even if there wasn't Google Street View, that Pogaccia probably still would have won on Sunday. Yeah, and I think the course is so hard, isn't it? Especially... From that second climb of the Quadamont, it's climb after climb after climb after climb. And that necessarily reduces, you know, no matter what the strategy and tactics, and it was actually quite well worked on that front on Saturday, no matter what the strategy and tactics in this race these days, the Queen does rise to the top. Exactly, yeah. And I think that is the key difference to the the race that you wrote about in your book is that there was quite a long way between the Valkenberg and in the foot of the Moor. And then you had the Bosberg. There was a bit of a gap between those two. So there, there was slightly more separation. I think it opened things up more to tactics in some ways. Of course, a lot of the time, the best riders and the favourites did win the race at the end of the day. But you know, again, in your example in your book, Nick Noyan's not one of the favourites, but probably played it tactically more astute than most of the other riders in the race. And I think that with those climbs coming in such quick succession now, even though there's that last 14 kilometres flat run into Aldenada, it's whilst the course stays like this, it's generally going to be the most powerful rider on the day that's going to win the race. Yeah, but the gratifying thing for me on Sunday was that, funnily enough, I think if that really strong break hadn't gone, 
I think the, the result largely might have been very similar with Pogatar first, Van der Poel second, Pedersen third. He looked the best of mm. the rest. But it was good to see that Pedersen, Kung, Fred Wright, Kasper Asgreen and several other really second tier favourites for the race didn't just wait to get mm. beaten. They did everything they could to put themselves in a position where maybe different decisions behind or different circumstances might have just given them a chance at winning. It wasn't like everyone lay down and let Pogacar win. I, th- I think the other riders also made the race on Sunday. They did, but they had to do that. And that was what all of them would have been thinking on the morning of Flanders is how do I get ahead of the big three? Because if I'm with them on the choir or wherever they decide to go full gas, I'm not going to be able to keep up and that will be my race over. But the result, one- the result would have been the same, no? It probably would have been, yes, but it made it far more interesting as a fan and as a viewer, didn't it, to watch? Because it did, in my mind, hang in the balance for a long time. When they got up to three minutes and you looked at the class of the riders within that group, Stefan Kung as well, you know, there were so many riders that were of that second tier, like you said, not part of the big three, but the next tier down, where on their day, if everything goes to plan, they might be able to win this race. And so it did make it a lot more interesting. I was saying this to, to all around Adam when we were watching the last part of the race, that if it wasn't for that group, there would have been a point where we were down to Pogaccia, Van Aert and Van der Poel. And you'd be thinking, well, great, you know, we'll see who wins out of these three. But at the same time, we all could have predicted this. We've got 50Ks to go and those three are out front on their own. And so I think it, it just made the race seeing those teams and riders going up the road. And I also think, you know, if Dylan Van Baal had been in that race and made that move, it might not have come back. It would have depended on how much faith Jumbo Visma put in him with the other rides that were in that group. But he has won a monument before on the cobblestones and he's won this year at Omloop Het Newsblad in fine style. So I think that, again, could have changed the outcome of this race. So overall, the race was it's kind of, again, unusual right from the very start because you know, these days in the Tour de France, especially those hilly stages, the break does take a long, long time to go because everyone wants to be in it because they've got a good chance of winning the stage. In classics still or monuments, that long fight to get in the break is maybe less intense than at the Tour de France in general. But on Sunday, it went on for two hours. Yeah, it has happened in the past because the first year that I did it, 2009, it was about 100 kilometres of attacking before. It's a completely chance thing, I think. It- Equally on Sunday, we might have just had this point with 20 kilometres done where there was a moment's hesitation from a few of the riders looking to get up the road. And all of a sudden, if you've got 10, 15 seconds, it doesn't need to go much above that before the people in the bunch are thinking to themselves, I can't jump across to this because they're going too fast. It's too big of a gap to close. So we're going to have to chase it if we want to be in there. And at that point, the elastic snaps and you've got your breakaway very quickly. It's just on some days and in some classics that moment's hesitation just never seemed to come. But I think on top of that, so many teams wanted to get up the road this year. Again, because of the big three. They wanted to get some sort of early advantage, even if it's just one of the lower level domestiques to help a rider later on in the race. And with that number of teams looking to go up the road, it's so many riders. And of course, none of them wanted to miss it. So that's why it can then take 100 kilometres at 50 k's an hour for it to go. But it was incredibly hard for those trying to get in the break. There was a guy from Movistar that posted his power file from the first 50, 100 kilometres and averaged 350 watts. Not even normalised power, actual average to try and get up the road, which would be you know, racing itself after time in the final two hours of a race, let alone at the first two hours of a 270 kilometre race. 
that has an effect on the rest of the race, doesn't it? I mean, that, you know. It does for those guys, but you know, a lot of people thought that Van der Poel burnt matches in that first part. I, I don't think he did. He certainly did for his teammates. You know, they had to do a, a really hard chase to get him back on when he was caught in that split. But if you look back at that footage, he was still relaxed visibly. I'm not sure what was going on in his head at that point, but certainly he didn't put his nose in the wind. He didn't aid the chase. He was still effectively sat in wheels. I, I wouldn't say that he really used himself any more energy than anybody else. But yeah, if you're assigned to go in the breakaway and it doesn't go for 100Ks, then you've probably made at least 20 attempts to get into it. And that's 20 accelerations. It might be 20 times when you're driving on the front because you've got a very small gap, hence the very high average power for the likes of the guy from Movistar. Yeah, you mentioned Van der Poel getting caught, well, getting caught out, not that maybe it had an effect on him, but having to use his team far earlier than he had to, that could have made a difference. It was not gale force winds, but they were certainly strong enough. And those initial stages of the Tour of Flanders are on wide roads but they can be quite open and the wind for a lot of those early stages was coming from the side so you know I don't think you're ever going to get a situation where at 240 k to go a team thinks well the wind's quite strong let's try and split it now because it's just so far to the finish but when you have those relentless attacks they have the speed at those points is 55 60 k's an hour and if they continue like they did you can cause a split at the very back of the bunch which is what happened he was on the wrong side of it. And yeah, I do think it's inexcusable because I'm not saying he did this, but I think it kind of looks pro, doesn't it? When you see the likes of Sagan or Van der Poel with their leg warmers on just hovering at the back, like I'm just so relaxed. It's where know. we'd all like to be, Dan. Well, exactly, yes. But like I said, I'm not sure that, that was in his mind that I'm trying to look cool at the back of the bunch. But he didn't look very cool for a while when he was 40 seconds off the back. You know, No team stuck the boot in or tried to put into the sword. But the attacks carried on for a long way afterwards. So that was a really hard chase that they had to make. There was a bit of disruption with two particular crashes. I mean, there are little dings here and there. Two particular crashes have eroded the bunch further. The, the second one was maybe more straightforward, a touch of wheels on a fast road. And when that happens, it's inevitable. Yeah. People go down. But the first one was much more uh, striking in that the Bahrain rider, Mashizuk, came down the outside, which we see... A hundred times yep. plus in a race like that. This time it didn't end so well because he hit a, a rut, bounced into the road and mm. effectively took down a quarter of the peloton. What's your interpretation of that? Because he obviously has received a fair bit of criticism and heat about that since. I think I said it at the time, but he'll feel as bad as anyone mentally. Obviously not as bad as other people physically, given the shattered collarbone for Tim Wellens and all the other injuries that the riders had. It's another example of how the commissaires make a decision based on the outcome rather than the cause. Because like you said, you can take a hundred examples just from Sunday's race where riders would have been on the side of the road. Not necessarily because they were trying to get an advantage. It's sometimes the swaying of the bunch pushes you over and you have no choice but to use the track on the side of the road, the bike path or whatever it might be. And it's a really difficult question to answer because... If the bunch does sway and 20 riders end up on the bike path, you can't disqualify them because where else were they going to go? That said, I guess if in theory you barriered 274 kilometres off, there would be nowhere to go. You'd have to break. Yeah. So yeah, I really don't know what the answer is. They've got the rule in place. They disqualified Luke Rowe in the past for going onto the sidewalk when he shouldn't have done a few years ago. And it's not dissimilar with sprint deviations, is it? You get sprint deviations where it's against the rules but no crash occurs and so no disqualification occurs. You get other sprint deviations, which might not be quite as bad, but because somebody hits the deck, 
that person that caused it is out of the race. And so I think that is a lot of people's frustrations with it is that it's inconsistently applied, but inconsistently applied or not, I, I don't know what the actual answer is to the rule because it, it's nigh on impossible to never stray to the side of the road in a race like that that's so hectic. Bike racing takes place out in the real world, doesn't it? And on a football pitch, the barrier between the arena of play and the spectators is a defined, clearly a defined mm. one. But in a bike race, the barrier is porous. You know, the sidewalks are right there. Sometimes there is, they're contiguous with the surface. As a rider, you're just, you're not necessarily thinking logically. I mean, if riders, if they thought logically, they wouldn't be going down mountainous descents at the speeds that they are. But you kind of take your brain out when you're racing in some respects, because not just for the riders at the front trying to win the race, but sometimes for the rider that might have been dropped even from the groupetta, they're thinking, well, if I don't catch back onto that group on this descent, my race is over because I'm going to be outside the time limit. And and so you, you're not thinking of the dangers you're putting yourself in. You're thinking only about getting back onto the wheel because as a pro cyclist, being on the wheel is the most critical thing of all until you try and try break away towards the end. And so whilst you might get the likes of a Carlos Verona on Twitter saying that there's no respect anymore, you and I both know that that's been said by every elder pro for generations. So I don't think there's anybody in that peloton on Sunday, not a Mathieu van der Poel, not a Van Aert, not the most experienced rider there, that hasn't in some point in their career felt quite desperate to get into position because that was their team role for that day, taken a risk, and it's paid off for them and they haven't crashed anybody out. It just so happens that Mathieu Juk did what a lot of other people have done, got it wrong, partly bad luck because of the rut there, and took out a quarter of the peloton in an actual crash and at least half held up by it. So it just, it looked exponentially worse, didn't it, than than yeah. had he been a bit more fortunate. I mean, we can look back and say, well, he should have braked as soon as he saw that this path was ending and it was going to be grass and a puddle that he didn't know what was underneath. But it's something you can debate forever and not necessarily come up with a a conclusion that everybody's happy with. So back to the race itself, that big break, the big break of hitters went over the Mollenberg. It is a dangerous point, that, because there's a narrow entry. The climb is kind of steep and twisting and narrow um, above all, and then you don't get the descent, you just get that wide open yep. expanse, and that is where the break went. And you could see that the people who joined that, who went across that, they could see that was the move to be in. Yeah, and and like you said, it didn't go on the climb. Askren went really hard up the Mollenberg, but didn't cause any separation, really. It was Trenton going on the attack. It was some way over the top, maybe one or two kilometres over the top. And I looked back at that the day after the race. Trenton goes, he's got a handful of rides on his wheel. Then you see Nathan van Hoydonk go. And in the background, you can just about see Van der Poel and Pogacar looking to the left, like who else is going to go? And van der Poel was in a situation where there was only a few metres of separation. He could easily have snapped and got onto the back wheel of those guys, but he didn't. So all of a sudden, he's got no teammates really left, one or two. You've got a whole host of teams who are represented at the front. And again, I don't know how clearly he thinks in races like that. Maybe he looked at Van Hoydonk and thought, well, are Jumbo Visma really going to gamble on him winning the race when there's a former winner, there's a Mass Pedersen, etc., all going up the road. And on that point, I did feel like Jumbo Visma failed on Sunday in comparison to the way that they'd ridden every single Cobble Classic so well with their numbers. And yes, Dylan Van Baal wasn't in the race. I just don't think they played it very well on Sunday in the end. Let's analyse their tactics a little bit more. So they have put Van Hoydonk in that break. You know, his uncle won the race twice. He's a decent, strong classics yeah. rider. He's definitely the kind of. He's not won who, a pro race, has he? Has he not won a pro race? I don't race? think so. 
That's yeah. Well, he, if he has, it might be one, but I don't think he's won a pro race before. Okay, and and also, Jumbo Visma will know what his capacities are, and. On one hand, he did sit on the back of that brake and didn't do any work. And mm. I was thinking, oh, that, well, that's that's an interesting, you know, if, if the others don't come back, then Jumbo Visma could have worse people to be in that position. But then again, you're right, they subsequently used him to pace Wout van Aert back on, which A, showed that Wout van Aert was off the pace and B, showed that van Hooydonk wasn't Jumbo yeah. Visma's card. So maybe Jumbo Visma didn't get their tactics quite right. It's a Maybe shame for us. Could have, should have been that guy in that Well, race. exactly, yeah, or Bonote or whoever. But I didn't see Bonote really the whole day. Not sure if I just missed him or he had bad luck. He might have been held. I mean, as you know, you never know the full story of everybody's day, really. You might be able to go back and watch it and just focus on one rider. But everyone's got their own story from a race of that distance and that chaos. But if you look at all the other races that they won this year, there'd be a point where you just get a sea of yellow on the front They'd go as hard as they could and you'd have at least two riders in a breakaway going up the road. And whilst those races are not the Tour of Flanders, it is a slightly different level. I just felt like they were lacking on Sunday in some respects. They never did that where they came to the front with their remaining domestiques and did that work to pull a group clear where Van der Poel might have been there, Pogaccia might have been there, but maybe none of their teammates, whilst Jumbo Visma had a, a Van Aert but also a Bonot and a Laporte as well, and maybe even a Van Hooydonk. Who knows? He probably would have had to do the donkey work. So I don't know what their game plan was and how much went wrong for them on an injury basis or a sickness basis or whatever it was. But I also think the pressure's probably getting to both Van Aert and to the team because they've only ever won in their very long history one cobbled monument. And it was 26 years ago, Rolf Sorensen in the Rabobank days winning the Tour of Flanders. It's very easy to think, given their success in recent years, that they must have won one, but they haven't. And I think for Van Aert, this increasing amount of pressure that he's incredibly consistent, but he still only has the one monument in his palmares. You know, all of his other results, fantastic as well. But for a Belgian fan and for the Belgian media, what matters to them is first and foremost Flanders and then secondly Paris-Roubaix. That's really what they want them to win. And thus far, he hasn't got either. He crashed and had a yeah. hole in his knee, which is suboptimal in a race. But at the same time, you're right, he's... It shows how narrow the margins are, really. Because remember, you know, think back to last summer and Wout van Aert had form, he had confidence, he had ability, everything was going right and he was, on a daily basis, handing out meetings at the Tour de France. I think it's a pressure thing. Those stages of the Tour de France that he's won, not just last year, but the year before, some of them might have been expected, but a lot weren't. You know, Von Thoux, certainly not expected. Champs-Élysées, it's a bonus. If he'd lost to Mark Cavendish on the Champs-Élysées, no one would have been thinking, what's he doing? Why has he lost to Mark Cavendish on the Champs-Élysées? But it's a different thing at the Tour of Flanders because there he is expected to be right up there and to win it at least once in his career. And the years keep passing by and he's always there or thereabouts, but he still hasn't won it. So I, I kind of feel like it's a pressure thing and maybe something in his head that's blocking him or holding him back in that race. Whereas when he's completely relaxed, his incredible physiological talent and power shines through because he can seemingly do what he wants without any pressure on his shoulders. You know, having a Vinegar or a Roglic by your side that is your main job and then having your opportunity and taking it is one thing. But when all of the focus is on you, and I kind of got that impression from the entire team on Sunday that, oh, he'd given the gift to Laporte. So now Laporte's all in for him. And the other rise may be the same, like this is Van Aert's day. So rather than playing the numbers as they've done so well, as Quickstep have done so well in the past, I got the sense it was, we've got to get Van Aert to the front today. It's his day to win. And because he was one or two percent off, 
it just didn't work out for any of them. I would bet that if Van Aert was French, he'd have won the Tour of Flanders by now. I just think that unconscious pressure almost. I mean, he's grown up in Belgium. He knows what it's like. He knows what the media's like on the lead-up to the Tour of Flanders for the Bonins before him, etc. Christophe Laporte with the same talent, let's say. The pressure on him leading into Flanders. And it's the same with Pogaccia. Like, Slovenia is not a weight on his shoulders going into the Tour of Flanders. I think even to a degree for Underpool. You know, the, the Dutch is not a nation of cycling fans in the same way as the Belgian fans. You know, they like it, but they're not obsessed by it like a lot of Belgium and Flemish fans are. And I genuinely think that could be one of the differences that, that's preventing him taking the big one there. So let's talk about Pogacar, the actual winner. I know it's Holy Week, but are we getting carried away and describing him as the Messiah? No. No, it, the statistics are unbelievable from his last, from this season alone. 16 days of racing, 10 wins. And the fact is that he he won his last two races of last season as well. So if you extend that out over his last 18 days of racing, he's won 12 races. And even if you take out the two GC races, it means that of those last 18 days, more often than not, he's crossed the finish line first in the race that he started. I just don't think there's a... We just haven't seen that, I don't think, in, in the modern era. And that's how much better he is currently than everybody else. And as journalists, we're kind of prone to two things. We're prone to recency bias and hyperbole. But this is the first time, yeah, I'm, I, I try to fight those instincts in myself so I can remain objective and impartial. But for the first time ever, I think, the first time since I've been following the sport, since I had an understanding of who Eddie Merckx was, I felt that for the first time ever, the comparisons are not a million miles off. I mean, obviously the era is different. It's a long time ago. The sport is different. But the fact that you pointed out earlier on that this is a Tour de France winner who's won the Tour of mm. Flanders and there's only Merckx and Luzon Bobby, you know, back in the 50s who've done that kind of signals that, yes, he is special. Yeah, I would say so completely. You're right. It's so difficult to compare different generations and different eras. It's great to start with that he's even doing these races in my mind. But can you imagine a Chris Froome in his heyday even starting the Tour of Flanders, let alone riding away on the on the outer Quaramont and taking the victory? You just wouldn't have... It wouldn't have crossed his mind, it wouldn't have crossed any of our minds that he'd even start, let alone be able to win that race. So I think that's great for fans in the first place. But like I said, just so difficult to compare generations. I went over to Ireland at the start of the year to go and do a documentary with Sean Kelly, out this week, incidentally, on GCN+. You know how good Sean was... But when you start looking back through the results, you're reminded of just how good he was. So even Pogaccia wouldn't do the Tour of Flanders on Sunday, fly to the Basque Country, start that race on the Monday. And yes, it was one day less at a time, but he did Monday to Friday in the Basque Country. And in one year, he was on the podium in Flanders. He won three stages and the GC at the Basque Country, then flew to France to start Paris-Roubaix on the Sunday, less than 48 hours later, and won that. And he did that twice. He won Paris-Roubaix twice in the same year as finishing the Tour of the Basque Country less than 48 hours before. So that's unbelievable. You know, Pogaccio won't be doing that, probably because he doesn't think it's a very good idea to start with. You, you say that, Dan. Well, he might, yeah, I guess he might be able to. But I, even for him, I don't think he would um, cast his net that wide, so to speak, to even try it in the first place. But nevertheless, we will look back on today Pogaccia's career, even if it stops now, and think that was something exceptional. Yeah, obviously capable of winning all three Grand Tours, capable of winning, well, he has won the Tour of Flanders-Liège and Lombardia. 
makes us all think naturally, well, can he win the full set of monuments? I, I always try to roll in the worlds as well. And he's clearly capable of winning the worlds because mm. it's generally a hilly one-day race and he's good at those. Milan-San Remo, it, it's clearly possible because he's been up there and Paris-Roubaix remains the conundrum. So do you think athletically and, well, athletically, he's capable of winning yep. all the full set? He, he's capable of it physiologically. I mean, it, not to be too critical, but if Matt Heyman and Johan van Sommeren can win Paris-Roubaix, so can today Pogaccia. It's more difficult for him because he's Pogaccia and he won't be let loose that far from the finish to be able to go for the victory. And yes, he can win San Remo, but everything has to go right. It's, you know, the reason why Gilbert couldn't get the fifth monument and the reason why Sagan never won San Remo is not because they weren't gifted enough or good enough to win it. It's just that everything has to go right on that day. He has to start Roubaix, obviously, to be able to win it. And it's no guarantee he can. But in my mind, there's no reason that he can't, if that makes sense. So the women's race was one-sided in a different way mm. to the men's race. But when I watched it, I had a sense of inevitability. Yeah. Um, first of all, that an SD Works rider would win. And secondly, that that SD Works rider would be Lotta mm. Kopecky. And it's funny because she's a Belgian rider. She appears impervious to any pressure that's being yeah. put, on, put on her. And she deservedly won a second Tour of Flanders and looked imperious in doing so. When you go back through that race and break it down, there's this point where they've got a group of four and three riders from SD Works. And if you take that in isolation and you write down on paper what the best tactical scenario would be, it would be to keep them all together as long as possible so you've got the numbers to play at the end. Then on the Tyenberg, Kopecky went, not flat out, but pressed on, dropped to Lorena Vives. Justifiable because the gap was only 16 seconds at that point, and Vives, as we know, is a sprinter more than a climber. But then we get to the Klausberg outside of Ronser, and she goes again. Persico still on a wheel. She looks around and sees Royce had dropped her teammate and goes even harder. I'm, I'm presuming to try and get rid of Persico there rather than to distance her teammate even further. So, again, if you take it all in isolation without knowing the context of her form and who she is, you think this is all going wrong for this team. Like they've, they've gone from a group of four with three riders to a group of two with one rider. But like you said, it, there was inevitability about it. It didn't seem to matter really that she was dropping her teammates because you knew that either on the Quaramont or the Paterberg or maybe even the sprint, even though Persico's fast that she was in that kind of mood and in that kind of form that she was never going to do anything but win on Sunday. And her career has been more of a slow burner than Tadej Pogacar, for example. Mm. Yeah, I was surprised I, how old she is, actually. I thought she was younger than she is. She's, she's been around for a fair few years. but She's always been that kind of rider who gets fourth, fifth, third, and kind of is up there in every race. And there are always riders like, like that. I mean, at, at the moment, I would say maybe a rider like Leanne Lippert is filling that role and she's consistent, strong, always there just waiting for the big breakthrough mm. and Kopecky was in that situation now I'm suddenly looking at her as actually she's I would say she's the best rider in the world at the moment certainly in the classics isn't she and that was the way that things used to be particularly on the men's side I think you could take the example of someone like Voss who was was winning from junior days in the elite category in some races but on the men's side I, I would sort of say for a long time that you didn't used to see riders that were teenage or even early 20s winning the biggest races. And there's a few reasons for that, but I think a lot of it was experience, getting strong with age, and all of a sudden something clicks and everything's going your way and you're a champion all of a sudden. We're seeing that now on the men's side, but you know that's the normal trajectory. And I, you know, 
it's normal to see Kopecky learning over the years, moving to a stronger team, getting better physiologically and through training, etc. that now she's at the top of her game and winning the biggest races. I think it's just her sheer wants to win and determination that's impressing me as much as anything. And I think Strade Bianca is a classic example of that. I think if she didn't have her personality, she might well have let Vollering win that day. But she's like, no, I, I won here last year. I want to win it again now. You've got to fight me for it, even though you're my teammate. You got that sense again on Sunday at Flanders, and we will get that sense again on Saturday at Paris-Roubaix Famavec Zwift this uh, this weekend. Yeah. So, Dan, thanks for your time and insight. We're going to catch up soon for more classics and analysis. Next up, James Start is going to continue the work of trying to persuade me that Paris-Roubaix is better than the Tour of Flanders. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the classics issue. The classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the Tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Germay. Germay is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars. He won Gent-Wevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Guillaume is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Ruler 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Immanuel Erviti, who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rouleau 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleau.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. So, Paris-Roubaix, James, uh, your favourite race, my second favourite race. This is your chance to explain to us just what it is about the hell of the north that you love so much. Just so many reasons. I have often said, and I still say, it's the only race for me where all of the emotion, all of the drama from the Tour de France is packed into one single day. And that goes back to, I guess, the very first time I saw it which was 1993, I believe. And Gilbert Duclos-Lassau was the aging uh, defending champion. But I mean, he's like nearly four years old. So when I say aging, very aging. And I was at the opening segment of the cobbles and he had flatted before, had a mechanical. He came in miles after the pack and well, you know, behind the dust had settled. And I was like, well, that's it. You know, Duclos-Lassau's not gonna want another Roubaix. And what did he do? He just battled his way back group by group and at the end of the day, he won that race by not even inches. I mean, like centimeter. It was just amazing. And it was like, okay, 
This is a race like no other race. It's just all day. You're listening to race radio and it's all day. So-and-so is back on. So-and-so is attacking. So-and-so is in the break and is flat and has gotten caught. I mean, it's just like, it's nonstop. And then it's held over this just brutal terrain and this really brutal countryside. I mean, this is not pretty countryside and yet it is so epic and is so much the perfect stage for this kind of a bike race. I mean, going past the old coal mines, right at the uh, entry into the Ehrenberg, all these old farm roads that go past slaughterhouses and, you know, lonely little bars. And it is just such a dramatic and such a uh, brutal race. And I think that anybody who wins it is just a king. Uh, so what's it like working on the race? I've got it down. I have to say, um, I've got it down. I've been doing it for so long. I, I always cut, cut through, I don't know, five, six seven sections, something like that. Even on a motor, it's really hard to get around the race. You really have to know those roads and really be able to cut them. And so we're just like sprinting from one section to the next. And over the years, I've, I've learned how to, you know, optimize that. Paul Sherwin, uh, bless his soul, a friend of mine from, for, you know, decades ago, back when he was with Motorola, and he was the one who showed me how to get from the Carrefour to the Roubaix Velodrome before the riders. And that's a, you know, that's like the Carol Ford lot is absolutely the last chance for anybody to break free. And then you gotta be at the Velodrome. So I learned how to do that. And over the years, I've just learned out where all these little roads connect. Last year, I went up and did the recon of both the men's and women's, and then I did the women's race and then the men's race. And that really like ingrained it into me. I barely even had to look at a map at that point. It's an exciting race to cover. And is it a tough challenge, you know, just artistically, creatively and, photographically the racing is so dramatic you tend to focus on the racing i really actually love the uh the recons because i was able to just sort of kind of con concentrate on the sort of pastoral setting that is this northern farmland but on race day you know the the racing is is, is front on from the time they hit the ehrenberg so you're actually very very focused on the racing and are you on the cobbled sectors is the motor going over them or is it are you staying off the race course? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. You come out of one cobble section and most, most of the time you have to cut to another one to get out to it. Yeah, they can't be that pleasant to be on the back of a moto. Not good for your back, I'll tell you that. And do you go with a plan of definite places or do you have to improvise as soon as you've basically encountered the race? Once in a while I improvise, but I've got it kind of down now and through trial and error I've learned. I've been caught a couple times where I thought I could make a cutoff and then I realized uh, like, and I did one year and then two years and then the third year I got totally screwed. My race was kind of over that day and just made, barely made it to the finish. And I've also learned that less can be more. Uh, there can be like a, a sort of race within a race with the photographers, like how many sections did you get today? You know, I'm gonna do this many. It's not always how many you do, it's the ones you pick and, and where the race is at that time. So I, I, have, I have it kind of down to where I, I need to be when to catch the drama. And you mentioned earlier on about the races going down these farm roads past slaughterhouses and kind of little villages, old bars, and it's it's factories and old mines. It's not glamour. You, you, you live in Paris, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. And theoretically, the, world, the race used to start in Paris, and it's still in the name, even though it goes nowhere near Paris these days. But... It's a long way from Paris, isn't it, both physically and culturally? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the start in Compiègne, okay, that's an old, a royal old town. So you can see that, you know, it's, that's got a lot of similar architecture, like, say, like the Place de Vosges in downtown uh, Paris. It's palatial. 
But once they once they leave Compiègne, yeah, they've just got miles and miles of flatlands and kind of long rolling straight roads and stuff all the way up to Troisville. This was old farmland and very untouched by time. And I've, I've gone up several times just to photograph just the landscape, like in the winter. And I just love the, I can photograph the landscape all day long. I just love it up there. Flanders is, is so wealthy in comparison. Um, this is real farmland and these roads have been chiseled out by years with you know tractors and whatever. And these cobbles are so much worse than anything you find in Flanders. I mean, it, Flanders is like, the Quarrelmount is, is like a carpet ride compared to the, the cobbles you find here. I mean, these things are brutal, just brutal. And the second you lose your speed and your rhythm, you just eat every one of those rocks. Do you get the sense that the relationship of the locals and the race is as close as that of the Flemish to the Tour Flanders, or is it slightly different? Uh, you no, know, I get the sense that they open up their lands once a year to, to us cycling fans. But, you know, it's not as... We, they don't have races coming through there every couple of weeks, and these roads aren't raced on like the, the cobbles in, in Flanders, you know, day in and out and day out. I mean, it's just... It's a different relationship. And then there's that velodrome. You hit that velodrome, and it's like... I've, I've ridden around that thing. That thing is dilapidated i mean it's really hard it's not a smooth you're not riding on boards here you're riding on old concrete it's got holes in it it's pretty fascinating so it's just yeah it's just there's so much history and so much it just oozes soul and do you have any i mean you mentioned the ducle la salle second victory have you got any favorite additions to the race oh well i uh, have some that were very memorable to me the first Mape triple uh, was 1996, and I was following the I was embedded. I was one of the first guys to actually get embedded with the teams back in the day. Loved the Chamil uh, victory, and was at 94, back in the rain, and uh, you know, yeah, rock shocks and all this stuff. And he just rode away from the uh, the GB Techno Gym guys. He was coming out of Eastern Europe and coming from nothing. Actually, he actually lived in some housing not far from the Rubray Village Room that his Lotto team put him up in. Uh, you know, just such real stories. In more recent times, as I always have a special place in my heart for Peter Sagan, and that victory of his was such a brilliant ride. And as was Gilbert's, I just thought those were brilliant rides, but especially, especially Sagan's, because he didn't have a big team behind him, and he just went out and just raced everybody off his wheel and caught everybody off guard, and nobody could see him again. And, and that was just such a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant victory for me. Epic Sagan. There's a half a dozen, a little shy of a half a dozen there uh, that I think were always just very special. But they all are. I mean, I just, you know, I love Boonin. Just a brilliant guy on the cobbles. He's, he's a big guy and he gets down so low on those on those bars and he's just like so arrow. And I just loved watching him ride the cobbles. He's so smooth. He reminded me a bit of some of the older guys like the Vlamanc or Moser. I guess he kind of reminded me of Moser on the, on the cobbles. He's just, he's big but he was just like a cat kind of prancing over those cobbles. It was, it was amazing to watch. Well, looking forward to seeing what you get from it and also to that big race. Thanks for your time and insight, James. We'll speak to you after the event. You have been listening to Rouleau Conversations. Rouleau Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rouleau magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rouleau and on Instagram at Rouleau magazine or visit our website at ruleur.cc.
This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.